When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and today we're going to be talking about restrictive lung disease. This should serve as a complimentary episode to last episode where we talked about obstructive lung disease. Remember, you can always leave comments on the website. The website address, at least for now, is acrac.libsyn.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C dot L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. And you can email me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C at A-C-C-R-A-C dot com. Or ACRACpodcast at gmail.com. All one word. I say that the web address is only that address necessarily for now because one of our fantastic residents, Brian Mariscalci, is helping me work on a new website, and I hope to have that up soon. I will let you know when it is up. Brian is not only a fantastic resident, he is also a technological wizard, and I expect that this website will be a true improvement over the old one once we get it up and running. Also, remember, you can sign up for the ACRAC email list by going to the website and clicking on the link there to sign up and receive emails when we have new episodes coming out or with other important news that we'd like to share. All right, let's get started with our episode for today on restrictive lung disease. First of all, Remember, restrictive pathology, and this is in contrast to obstructive pathology, which we discussed on the last episode, restrictive pathology is characterized by difficulty getting air in, but no problem getting air out. This is as opposed to obstructive pathology, which is the opposite. No problem getting the air in, but difficulty and prolonged flow in getting air out. So you can imagine that the typical breathing pattern in a patient with restrictive lung disease is going to be rapid, shallow breathing. They have to do rapid, shallow breathing because they're unable to get a lot of volume in, and so the only way to keep up their minute ventilation, since they can't take large breaths, is to keep up a rapid respiratory rate. There are two main categories of restrictive lung disease. There is intrinsic, meaning inherent to the lung parenchyma, and there is extrinsic, meaning that the lungs themselves are fine, but something having to do with the rest of the body whether the nerves, the muscles, the chest wall, is preventing the lungs from being able to expand fully. If you listened to the last episode on obstructive lung disease, you probably were somewhat entertained by my attempts to describe in words flow volume loops and exactly what was happening. I was very proud of myself when I landed on this hamburger bun analogy uh, in the prior episode when I was talking about upper airway obstruction. Now, I'm going to, again, attempt, uh, but we'll spend less time on this time, the description of flow volume loops, this time for restrictive lung disease. 
So you remember, hopefully, that the typical flow volume loop consists of inspiration moving from the right side of the x-axis over to the left. So the opposite way that you would expect. So residual volume is the farthest point right on the x-axis, and total lung capacity is the farthest point left. So you start on the x-axis at residual volume on the right. You then inhale, and the flow goes negative. So down below the x-axis, going negative on the y-axis, and curves around like a semicircle below the x-axis, and then back up until it meets the x-axis again at total lung capacity. This creates a curve that is essentially a semicircle below the x-axis, and that is your inhalation flow curve. Now for exhalation, we're going to go up. So this is considered positive flow as you exhale. We're going to go up above the x-axis, positive on the y-axis, and a normal curve looks like a shark fin, a relatively steep upslope and then a smooth, more or less 45-degree downslope down to the x-axis. We talked last time about how in obstructive disease, that downslope is scooped out. So instead of a nice 45-degree angle, it dips and curves down around as if someone has scooped out that edge of the shark fin. In restrictive disease, the key thing is that the volume is reduced. So the distance between total lung capacity and residual volume, those two points are closer together on the x-axis, meaning the total lung capacity is less. That's one big difference. Another is that the upslope, on some graphs you will see that the upslope will look much steeper, and on some it will look the same. But it will be an upslope for exhalation above the x-axis, and then a steep downslope steeper than your normal 45-degree dip for your shark fin. So the downslope of your exhalation curve is going to be steeper because, remember, it's going to come down in a, at a point that is closer to where it started on the x-axis because that total volume is less. Your inhalation curve will still be dipping down below the x-axis, but it will be sharper because, again, that volume is less, you have to go down and back up in less total space. So you will have a more acute downslope on your inhalation curve, and then it will come back up to the x-axis again in a, in a sharper direction. So instead of a nice semicircle, you have a, an elongated half oval where the long portion of the oval is going down and the short squeezed-in sides are the two points along the x-axis. If you only remember one thing, remember that the flow volume curve for restrictive lung disease is reduced total volume, and it is not scooped out like the obstructive curve. It is just sharper up and down, sharper down and up. If you remember that, you'll be able to distinguish it from the normal and from obstructive curves. All right, if you're out running as I suggest you do with these podcasts, then be ready for a question and see if you can keep the answer choices in your head and choose the one you think would be correct. What is the classic spirometry finding in restrictive lung disease? Is it A, 
increased total lung capacity, B, preserved or increased FEV1 over FVC ratio, C, significantly decreased FEV1 over FVC ratio, or D, increased DLCO? Take a minute. Hopefully you said that the answer was B, preserved or increased FEV1 to FVC ratio. That is correct. Let's talk about why. Let's go back for a second to obstructive lung disease. In obstructive lung disease, your FEV1, the forced expiratory volume in one second, is reduced. You have a hard time getting air out. Your forced vital capacity, though, your entire amount of air you're able to force out, is relatively unchanged. And so the ratio of FEV1 over FVC is reduced quite a lot because your numerator is reduced, the FEV1 is reduced, and your denominator is relatively unchanged. In restrictive lung disease, on the other hand, your FEV1 is relatively unchanged. It might be a little decreased, but usually it's fairly unchanged because remember, getting air out is not the problem. So that first second, you get air out relatively normally. However, your FVC, the total amount that you can get out, is significantly reduced. So your denominator is reduced quite a lot because your total volume in your lungs is reduced. And so that ratio, FEV1 over FVC, is more or less the same or increased, but certainly not decreased. It could be the same if your FEV1 falls a little and your FVC falls a little, so in mild restrictive disease. Or in severe restrictive disease, where your FVV1 may fall just a little, but your FVC now has fallen quite a lot, that ratio will be, if anything, increased. It's not uncommon at all on boards for them to give you a pattern of spirometry and ask what description of a scenario it fulfills or what kind of pathology it describes. And the best way to do this is just to have in your head an idea of what the lungs are doing in each of these diseases. The way I like to think about it is that normal lungs are kind of like a slinky with a normal amount of resistance. If you stretch them and then let go, they come back at a reasonable pace. They don't spring back, but they also don't stay expanded. Obstructive lung disease is like an old stiff accordion. When you try to squeeze it, there's all that air and it's squeezing out through small holes and it's hard to squeeze that accordion back together. It's hard to get that air out. Really restricted lungs are like a tightly coiled spring. It's hard to stretch it out, but when you let go, it springs back together relatively easily. And so the problem is in the separating it, not in the coming back together. The problem is in the inspiration, in stretching out the lungs, not in collapsing the lungs and exhaling. The diffusion capacity for carbon monoxide is another variable measured in spirometry. And this is something we discussed last time with obstructive lung disease. Here, Let's review. It measures the ability of the lungs to transfer oxygen to the blood. We talked about obstructive disease. In restrictive disease, it's helpful in the differential diagnosis. Why is that? If you have reduced lung volumes and reduced DLCO, that would suggest you have interstitial lung disease. It's causing an inability to expand the lungs, so reduced volumes, and it's causing a problem with oxygen diffusion. Therefore, the problem is in the interstitium. It's in the parenchyma. It's not extrinsic to the lungs. Now, if you have reduced lung volumes with a normal DLCO, what would that suggest? It should follow that that suggests an extra pulmonary cause. 
such as obesity, a pleural effusion, neuromuscular weakness, scoliosis, etc. In other words, the lung tissue is fine. The ability of the lung to do its job of exchanging oxygen and carbon dioxide is fine, but the volume is reduced because, for example, in obesity, the abdominal obesity is pressing up and constricting the ability of the lungs to expand, and therefore the volume is reduced, but the function of the lungs is still preserved. The other pattern you may see is normal volume with reduced DLCO, and that is a pattern that is suggestive of pulmonary vascular disease. So it hasn't affected the lung volume, the lungs can still expand, but the pulmonary vasculature, the capillaries that undergo exchange of oxygen, are damaged and unable to do their job. So the lung tissue itself is fine, but the vasculature is not, and therefore there's normal lung volumes with reduced DLCO. Let me summarize for you the uses of DLCO. Again, that's diffusion capacity of the lung for carbon monoxide since we've talked about it with two different disease processes over the past two episodes. In obstructive disease, if you have a normal DLCO with an obstructive pattern in your FEV1 and FEC, that would be suggestive of asthma. So the obstructive pattern, but normal ability to diffuse oxygen. If you have a reduced DLCO with an obstructive pattern, that would suggest emphysema. So now you have the obstructive pattern, the inability to exhale, but also the ability of the lungs to exchange oxygen has been damaged. And then as we just discussed in restrictive disease, a normal DLCO with a restrictive pattern, meaning reduced lung volumes, would suggest extra pulmonary restriction. And a reduced DLCO with reduced lung volumes would suggest interstitial lung disease. And then the DLCO reduced with no restriction or obstruction, so normal lung spirometry curves would suggest pulmonary vascular disease. Let's talk about some of the causes of restrictive lung pathology. So we'll start at the top with neurologic causes. There are a few different ways that there can be neurologic causes of a restrictive pattern of spirometry. You can have CNS depression, spinal cord dysfunction, or peripheral nervous system dysfunction. And what's happening here is that the lung parenchyma is normal. The lungs would expand fully but they either aren't being told to by messages from the central nervous system or they can't get the signal that is being sent by the brain because of pathology in the spinal or the peripheral nervous system. And so you have normal lungs that are not expanding fully and are therefore acting in a restricted way. Examples of CNS dysfunction that can cause this would be central hypoventilation syndrome and multiple sclerosis, depending on where it affects, and Spinal and peripheral causes are things such as ALS, myasthenia gravis, and Guillain-Barre. Another way to think about this is demonstrated by the following question. What would differentiate neurologic restriction from parenchymal restriction with positive pressure ventilation in the operating room? So imagine you have a patient there, you're ventilating them. What would you see differently depending on the cause of their restrictive pathology? A, neurologic cause would have higher plateau pressures while parenchymal would have higher peak pressures, B, parenchymal would have higher peak and plateau pressures, C, neurologic would have higher peak and plateau pressures, or D, they cannot be distinguished in this manner. Hopefully you said B, that the parenchymal cause would have higher peak and plateau pressures, 
while in fact the neurologic cause of restriction, you would have no change from normal in your pressures. The lungs themselves and the ability of the lungs to expand are normal. And when you're using positive pressure to expand those lungs, there will be no problem, no increased pressure. But with parenchymal disease, it will be you'll have much higher peak and plateau pressures due to the restricted nature of the lungs. There are musculoskeletal causes of restrictive lung disease. So, for example, muscular dystrophy leads to weak respiratory muscles and an inability to expand the lungs fully. Scoliosis, pectus carinatum, and pectus excavatum are both causes of skeletal causes of restrictive lung disease. So you can have scoliosis that is restricting the ability of the lungs to expand. And with the different pectus disorders, if it's severe enough, that can also prevent expansion of the lungs, leading to a restrictive pattern. And then there are other related causes such as obesity, trauma to the chest, and burns that can restrict the ability of the lungs to expand. You certainly don't need to memorize all of the different causes, just understand the way that this works. Anything that causes the lungs to not be able to expand fully is going to have a restrictive pattern. Following this logic, you can imagine that there are pleural and mediastinal causes. So a pneumothorax, a hemothorax, a chylothorax, anything surrounding the lungs and preventing them from expanding, pleural effusions in general, empyemas, bronchopleural fistulas, so something that is causing air to get into the pleural space and essentially an ongoing pneumothorax, and then pleural thickening from fibrosis, from irritation, from infection, anything that causes the pleura itself to thicken can prevent the lungs from expanding fully. And finally, we have our parenchymal causes. So these are things that are inherent to the lung themselves that cause a restrictive pattern. And there are many. I will go through some here, and then we'll just highlight the most important ones, the ones that are most likely to show up on your board exam. So you have atelectasis, infant respiratory distress syndrome, syndrome pneumonia, interstitial pneumonitis, pulmonary fibrosis, respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS, and bronchopulmonary dysplasia. Any of these, and again, don't worry about memorizing the names of these things. Just remember, anything that makes the lungs stiffer, less compliant, and harder to expand is going to fall into this category. So you're going to have less total volume, hard to get air in, no obstruction to air getting out. Let's go over a few of these in more detail. Infant Respiratory Distress Syndrome, RDS, is due to a lack of surfactant. It's often the case, but not always, but usually the case that this happens in premature infants. There are other names you may still see for this, such as hyaline membrane disease, surfactant deficiency disorder, and the most common, of course, being what we started with, infant RDS or respiratory distress syndrome. Again, this is usually premature infants, but it is possible to have it in a regular full-term infant where it can be associated with infection or genetic disorders. It affects about 1% of newborns and is actually the leading cause of death in premature infants. 50% of babies born between 26 and 28 weeks will have this syndrome and 25% born between 29 and 31 weeks. It's often associated with diabetic mothers. And probably the most important thing to know if they ask in any way about treatment is that you can reduce the incidence of this by giving steroids to mothers. And so at most centers, any mother in labor with a fetus that is younger than 34 weeks gestation will automatically get 48 hours of betamethasone. 
I will put the slides up again on the website, and you'll see if you look at them that there's an X-ray of an infant with RDS. The things that you may recognize or that you should be able to recognize are that they will have a barrel chest, so an ex overexpanded chest. There will be air bronchograms and near-complete whiteout of the chest, at least at part of the time course during this process. We could do an entire podcast or more about ARDS, but let's just highlight some of the most important features. Remember, ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome, is precipitated by a variety of things, but the most common are sepsis, trauma, pneumonia, aspiration, or transfusion. And you get a flooding of the alveolus with proteinaceous material, activated neutrophils, and platelets and blood cells. And you get a damage in the epithelial lining of the lung such that the lung has a hard time clearing this material from the alveolus. And this leads to refractory pulmonary edema and the damage that we associate with ARDS. Hyaline membranes form above and replacing the epithelial layer of the alveoli. And as more and more hyaline membranes form and more and more fluid accumulates in the alveoli, the lungs get stiffer and stiffer, and you see more and more of a restrictive pattern. Lastly, we'll talk about pulmonary fibrosis. I will put a, an example of a CT scan slice from a patient with pulmonary fibrosis on the slides. And what you'll see is that you see the typical honeycomb appearance with white lines interspersed with large black areas where air is trapped between the fibrotic portions of lung. Pulmonary fibrosis can be caused by a variety of things, so certain exposures such as asbestos, coal dust, silicon dust, radiation to the chest can cause it, certain medications, and the ones you should know are amiodarone, bleomycin, and methotrexate. It can be associated with certain diseases, again the big ones here being rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, scleroderma, and sarcoidosis. It can be associated with tuberculosis, and of course it can be idiopathic. Let's move to a question. What is the most common cause of death other than disease progression and pulmonary fibrosis? Is it A, renal failure, B, hypercarbic respiratory failure, C, right heart failure from pulmonary hypertension, or D, end-stage liver disease from liver fibrosis? Take a minute. Hopefully you said C, right heart failure from pulmonary hypertension. What happens is that the persistent hypoxia, and as the disease progresses, people get more and more hypoxic, and hypoxia leads to gradual increases in pulmonary pressures, and over time it gets significant enough that the right heart can no longer push against that pressure, and you can get right heart failure, which can lead to people's death. The most common cause of death from pulmonary fibrosis is progression of the disease to the point where people can no longer oxygenate. But other causes, again, are right heart failure from pulmonary hypertension. These people are also at high risk for pulmonary emboli. Because of the fibrosis that's happening throughout the lung, they are at risk for bronchogenic carcinoma. Just as in the liver, when you get cirrhosis, that puts you at risk for cancer. Same in the lung as you get this fibrosis. It makes the lung more prone to develop into a cancerous state. And finally, these people are at risk for infection as well. And finally, a few things that didn't come up in any of the other categories that can lead to restrictive lung disease pathology. One very common and important thing to remember is pain. So anything that, again, prevents full expansion of the lungs. You see this a lot in people post-cardiac surgery or post-thoracic surgery. 
where they have pain and they cannot, it hurts when they expand, try to expand their lungs fully. So they do what we call splinting. They don't expand fully. And that is going to give them a restrictive pattern. It also, of course, puts them at risk for developing a pneumonia. Abdominal distension from any cause, including, including ascites, can lead to lung pathology just like obesity. The lungs have a hard time expanding against the large pressure in the abdomen. And finally, a diaphragmatic hernia, whether congenital or, or developed later in life, as the abdominal contents herniate into the chest, the lungs obviously have less room to expand and will develop restriction. All right, that's it for today. Please remember, if you have comments, you can leave them on the website, and hopefully we'll have a new, better website up soon, and I will let you know what the address is as soon as we have it. You can also email me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com or ACRACpodcast at gmail.com. For those of you who just took boards a couple of weeks ago, congratulations on being done. For those of you who have it coming up a year from now or more, Hopefully by that time, we'll have many more of these podcast episodes up to help you review while you run or commute. That's it for today. I'm Jed Wolpaw for the ACRAC podcast. And remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.